0: This is Patriot to the Core Podcast, and I am Thad Forrester. Thank you for joining me again this week. Today's guest is Mr. Brant Ireland. Before we get to Brant, I just want to thank you for continuing to listen and support the podcast. Thank you to those people who have suggested guests. Uh, Several of the guests have been, not several, but a few of the guests have been from listeners who have suggested them. So uh, if you have someone else that you think should be on the podcast, please let me know. Thad at Patriot to the core.com. And there's a bunch of other ways you can get a hold of me too. So most of you know how I was lost. I was a shell of who I was. I couldn't find me. Those are the words of Brant Ireland. Brant is a, a former green beret. Well, he's actually still in the army. He is, has lost his left leg above the knee in a bizarre situation in Afghanistan. We'll talk all about that. We'll talk about his career, how he became, got into SF. He was a college baseball player, very athletic guy, and then how he struggled, not only physically, but just the emotional struggles that he went through recovering from the injury and debating, do I have it amputated or do I not? Because he did not want to have his leg amputated. Ended up, that's what he had to do. He didn't want to do adaptive sports. He thought those weren't real sports. Then he found sled hockey, and it changed his life. So let's talk to Mr. Brant Ireland. Okay, well, Brant, I first came in contact, or not in contact, but I first learned about you through an ESPN article. I'm not even sure how I came across it, but it was that article about uh, Brant becoming Brandt again or something like that? Oh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so from the Warrior yeah. Games, I believe, this past summer in 2017. It was a great article, and, and when I read it and watched the video, I said, "Man, I got to talk to this guy." And so I started thinking, "How can I get a hold of him?" Wouldn't well, you know it? We have a mutual friend or two, <laughs> so it kind of worked out really good. So appreciate you finally. It's I've been trying to to get you on the show for several months, and glad it's finally worked out. You've been shoot, you've been busy going around the country in uh, different. Uh, I don't know. You had the Invictus Games re- recently, is that right?
1: Yeah, the, the Invictus Games were—I want to say—last fall, October, October, uh, up in Toronto. Um, but then there was some, you know, some training that led up to there. And gosh, uh, we're we're already kind of rolling into this next year's Warrior Games. I think I, with a uh, Team SOCOM's initial uh, training camp uh, next next week, actually. So, so where's the Warrior yeah, Games
0: going to be this year?
1: Um, it's going to be out in Colorado at the, the Air Force Academy.
0: And what events are you going to compete in?
1: Plan on doing everything I did, did last year. So individually, track, and you know a few of the that kind of steps of the sprints. Hopefully this year I'll add a few longer, uh, longer distance runs. But then, the, and then the field aspect, the the discus and the shot put, and then cycling, swimming, seated volleyball which is a blast and then uh, wheelchair basketball and I think they're adding rowing this year. So, uh, I, I plan on ho- hopefully, hopefully doing that. I haven't got the official words on, on what, or what events that I, they've set me up for, but, uh, hopefully like I said, I want to do as many as I could to completely just kind of, uh, take me out of my comfort zone and, and really train for all those different things maybe. Gosh, all of a sudden, kind of feel like an athlete again.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I'd like to go back and talk about in high school or no, in college you played baseball, correct? I did. Played uh, four years of collegiate collegiate baseball, and then you you went into the army. Were you? Did you go in as an officer or did you enlist? I uh,
1: well, I I went in shortly
0: after I earned my uh,
1: bachelor's degree. I think it only took like six years, but uh, I finally. <laughs> Finally got it, and uh, shortly thereafter, you know, it was 9/11 occurred. I think my junior year, so it was it was kind of had my mind made up that it was going to happen. It was just a matter of pulling the trigger. But I I went in, enlisted, because I went into what they called the 18 X-ray program, which is basically a special forces recruit, and you can't do that as a uh, you know as as an officer or going the officer route you know, and talking to, talking to some, some people I, I knew if you're going to do, you know, if, if you're going to get into special forces and things like that, it's a, being enlisted is a good, good place to be because you get a lot, you're eligible for a lot more taking time than you are as an officer.
0: I haven't heard of that 18 x-ray program, so I'm going to look that up. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, I didn't know anything about it,
1: and honestly, when, I, I guess I, I test it all right on the, you know, initial entry as Fabs And then you have to do like a, uh, I think it's called a, a D-Lab, which is, a uh, I think, def- defense language aptitude uh, something where it's kind of like a, a made-up language. And you have to kind of basically you test your, your aptitude to learning a, a uh, a foreign language and so i guess i tested all right and i was planning on going in as an 11 bravo and uh with infantry and getting the you know, fastest way to the fight but then um the recruiter offered this no absolutely really no thought that i would actually make it through but i figured i'd get some great you know hopefully some great training through it and then if you don't if you don't make it through like the special force qualification course, then you go need to the army infantry anyway. So I figured I'd, I might as well give it a shot, but really had no, uh, really thought there was no, no chance of actually getting through and earning, earning my green beret. So. Did
0: you care? Was it fine with you either way? Or did yeah, you really I mean, it, want that green but, beret? It started off as like I didn't know a
1: lot about, you know, the, the history and the lineage of, of, the green berets. And, but then, you know, I decided that was the route I was going to go. And then between then and when I actually left for basic training, I did, you know, did some research and I was like, wow, this, uh, what a, uh, you know, what an incredible group and, and what they've, what they've accomplished and just their, um, their proud history. And, you know, it's like, that would be, that would be incredible you know, to be a part of that and to get, to get more than anything, to get the opportunity uh, and the responsibility to do some of the, you know, the missions that that they do and um, the things they've they've done, you know, over over the last, you know, 50 years. As I researched it, I I became a little bit more, like, kind of hoping, all right, well, this is, I think this is regardless of if I don't make it through in this initial pipe uh pipeline or, or 18 x-ray program then gosh i'll, I'll do my infantry time and i can feel like i'm experienced enough to to get back to it but as i did that like i said as i did that research it became something that i felt would be an incredible op- opportunity and, and something that i wanted to uh, be a part of i figured you know if i'm gonna do this and i'm you don't want to do everything I can to, you know, fight for the country and protect our pr- protect our country. If I was able to get this kind of training and be part of such a such an incredible group, then that would be that would be phenomenal. But again, still, even even with that, I I had no idea that I would make it through.
0: Where were you at physically? Were you in in the shape that you needed to be to go through the the pipeline?
1: I would say, you know, because my Background as an athlete, I mean, I played college baseball, but sports are. If you ask uh, my wife, Tanya, that's that's just a huge part of my life. If I'm not watching ESPN, and I'm, you know, out in the out in the yard chipping golf balls, or going for a, a a run or whatever, it's just such a huge part of my life. So luckily, with that, felt to be an athlete, you got to maintain your fitness. Um, I'll admit, I had kind of let myself go a little bit after college and, um, but you know, started, started training back up. And I think I lost maybe 30 or 40 pounds to go into basic training. there. Yeah, I lost, lost a bunch more there. So through basic training, and then they did a really good job of even, you know, with the 18 X-ray program, I thought they had these, so the pipeline goes, you go to uh, basic training and then down at Fort Benning, Georgia, and then, you do a follow-on uh, AIT or advanced infantry tram, i sure, uh, something like that. But then, so you learn how to be an infantryman a little bit more, a little bit more particularly and, and learn the job. Um, and then if you make it through that, then you go straight to the other side of Fort Benning and you go through Airborne School and then you're shipped up to Fort Bragg and then there kind of starts a, Acronym is, is SOP C, which is uh, special operations preparation and conditioning. And it was it was tough, but they they got us so prepared for selection that I felt by the end of SOP C I was definitely in the shape I needed to be for selection. And actually it made selection. I'm not gonna say I'm not gonna say it was a breeze, but I felt like I was very physically and we'll call educationally prepared for selection, like the land navigation and, you know, and, and the rucking and the running. So, mm-hmm. and then if you make it through selection, then, uh, I think you go through, uh, what they call a, a C two, which basically is designed to get you ready for the next phase. And at that time it was uh, a small unit tactic. And so it was, was kind of like, uh, you know, learn how to write con hops and, and do, uh, you know, patrolling and, you know, basically small unit tactics, almost like a, a, mini ranger school. But I thought, again, they, they prepared us phenomenally through that. So, and then the rest of, of the qualification course, you had kind of set the precedence of what kind of shape you, you, know, you needed to be in and, you know, kind of figure out through the, through the training, how, how to maintain it. And, uh, you know, it was tough. You go through, I think it was a six, six month, language school where you spend a lot of classroom time and um, that's always a, a dangerous place to uh, a lot of studying so and also the 18 delta course a lot of studying with that too you know it's very easy to push the the fitness give it a back seat to the to the educational and the studying part but I thought it was, you know, it was important. So I, I would say I kept, uh, call it an adequate level of fitness through the Q course and never, you know, always did well on PT tests and, and everything like that as they give you as you go through phases. Um, but then it wasn't until I got to a team. And I, that's that's when you start learning everything. Qualification course is just that. It, do you qualify? Do you have the potential to be a green beret, and you know, so they they give you the green beret, and then you get to a team, and really, that's where that's where the learning starts. That's when you know you learn how to be a team, a, a good teammate. You learn, you know, just being attached to the the older guys, and and learning what it takes, what it really takes to be a good green beret, and then also the the physical part. Definitely, you learned a lot from the guys that were on the team because it was. Kind of taking it up a notch. These are, you know, some of the, the most elite soldiers in the world, and in their, definitely in our military. So, um, you got to kind of like relearn. All right, what is it? What is it going to take? Fitness and physical wise to really be able to accomplish missions as as an ODA member. Like I said, the learning <laughs> the learning starts once you get to a team. If you're lucky enough to get get that far
0: other than your injury that we're going to talk about what stands out the most from your time in the army and I know you're still in so is there anything else that shoot maybe even more significant I don't know than your your leg injury
1: honestly it, it's you not know, to be a cliche but it, I mean it's it's the people it's my teammates that stand out it's the it's the incredible American heroes that I had the honor of of working with and learning from and being with in some of the, some of the most difficult situations or the most uh, dangerous situations. And you learn, learn so much from those guys. And really, so it's really my teammates that if I could say, you know, there's one thing that, that sticks out. Yes, I got great training, some really great experiences, but it all comes down to really who I got to share it with and who I knew would always look out for me and, would always, you know, would always take care of me. And the whole military life has been a learning process to me and, and my family. We don't really come from a military, neither of us came from military families necessarily, so it was definitely an adventure together. When I think about, just looking back, really honestly, it's it's the people and it's the teammates that pop out first, that, that really have, and, and like I said, got to see true and real-life American heroes, not the ones you necessarily read about in a the, in, in the book or that, that seems so distant, that you know, you got to, you know, work with them on a daily basis, learn from them. And, and, uh, you know, that, that, that camaraderie and that trust that, uh, that you build, uh, with your teammates is like, like I said, I grew up playing sports and it's always, you know, teammates and that kind of thing, but it, there's nothing like uh defending your country with guys that would in a split second be willing to lay down their life for for you and in this great country
0: well will you talk about your injury now and what deployment like what number deployment was it and then what happened because it just seems like a bizarre situation to me
1: well it it was um i believe sixth deployment to uh to Afghanistan that was kind of had become home away from home at that, at that point. And it was in Eastern, Northeastern Afghanistan where it's definitely a little more mountainous and um, working with Afghani commandos. But, you know, a lot of times to get to, to these bad, you know, bad guys, you, a lot of times you got to do it by air because they're up in the mountains or in pockets or, you know, uh, in valleys. So we had a, 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 well-planned night combat operation with, with, uh, a counterpart that the Afghan commandos at, at that time, and it was just really one of those things I look back about it. It was just, it was just my path, I can't say anything else, but it's like there's so many you know coincidences or, or whatever that it was just like, um, it was, it was no doubt meant to happen and planned for me. But to get to the, the, the details of it, we hopped on a couple of uh, Chinooks, H 47s, and infield and, um, into a known, you know, bad guy haven, I guess. And so we were ready to, you know, as soon as that bird touched down, we were ready to get, get moving off the bird. And then we did and, uh, got off the bird. Okay. And I was weighed down with quite a bit. It's supposed to be a, uh, you know, a longer mission as far as longer than 48 hours, maybe 72. So with ammo and everything, I was definitely weighed down over, I'd say over 150 pounds on my back.
0: And how much you know, did you weigh? Cuz you you're you're not a small guy. You're like are you about 63? Prob- yeah, I'm I'm, I'm 63 and probably depending on if I'm wearing my leg or
1: not. Uh, I I Well, I mean like then, a, at
0: that time how much did you weigh?
1: Well, at, at that time I was probably a, a little bit uh, um, a little bit bigger as far as stronger. I I like I felt like I was in the best shape of my life. I felt like I was the strongest. I'd ever been in my life. Um, so I'd say somewhere between 230 and 240, um, but like a, a lean 230 or 240. And, and and like I said, it was, yeah, so it, it, it was a lot, of, a lot of weight, but you kind of, you know, you learn how to move with it. And the last thing you want to be is out there with, you know, without something you need. So, you know, moved, uh, moved off the birds in between, you know, them taking back off it was pretty much a brownout or we'll call it a greenout because we were under, uh, under night vision. We started moving towards our objective and, uh, went off a, it seemed like a cliff, but it was more like a, a drop off. I couldn't even tell you how many feet, but it, it wasn't nearly what I felt. Felt like it was more, I didn't see that. I didn't see the edge. And I was, I was the first one. The commandos kind of, like to uh, watch and see where you're going, and then they'll go. They gain a little confidence when they know you're, uh, you know, an American Green Beret is out out front. So started moving, and like you said, just went off a drop-off, and I, I reached with my leg like, you know, we all do when an unexpected drop, you kind of reach for the ground with your foot, and I ended up landing with you know, my leg outstretched and locked out, so it was almost you couldn't have been in a more, we'll call it a perfect position. Like it was the perfect fall or the perfect landing, where all that weight came down on that that locked out leg and uh, just. And Brandt, I'm sorry.
0: Did you was this jumping out of the bird, or were you already on the ground and you jumped down to a lower ledge or something? Sorry, sorry. I yeah, uh, I was I was off the bird. So okay. Made, you're already um, off of it. All
1: right. We were moving, and I believe that, that the Chinook was actually starting to take off again, which is what caused even you know lower visibility. So went off a a, a drop off, stepped down, whatever. Like I said, it seemed like a cliff to me, but I remember looking back at it, and it was not nearly <laughs> nearly as a distance as I thought um, or what it felt like. But all that weight came down, and, and the left leg just dislocated backwards, so it, it folded the wrong way.
0: Ouch. That is so painful to think about.
1: Well, it, it, you know, it was when it happened, it was, you know, you had some, some adrenaline going, anyways, and, and almost disbelief. Like what just happened, I, I hopped, wanted to keep moving, so I hopped up and took another step, and there just was nothing there. So I like basically it folded back, and my toe ended up near my midsection or, or groin area um, and was kind of folded underneath me. And so it was that second step where I realized, wow, it's it's probably a pretty bad injury. I knew it, at the very least I had blown the knee out as far as soft tissue eyes and ligaments but I waited for kind of a you know in in a little disbelief and definitely anger and disappointment I laid there till uh, you know the bird had moved off a little ways and we could actually hear each other over the radio and you know let them know that I was kind of incapacitated at that time I feel like is that all those things I had never blown out any or anything like that but I was like this is this has got to be what that feels like.
0: Did you ever – did you look at it and think you were seeing things, question your vision? It, or did it confuse did I, you when you looked at it? Yeah, when you first saw it, it's like, well, no way. What, what Am I seeing what I think I'm seeing?
1: Oh, as far as, far as the leg? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, it, it, I mean, it was definitely disbelief. Like, you know, you look at and you see your foot and it's like, uh, it's not – you know, it's not supposed to be there. But so, it, yeah, it was definitely – definitely that that initial confusion and then when kind of the the pain set in yeah i guess it was when it was like snapped me out of it and realized wow yeah my legs in, in in bad shape right now um unfortunately it's not a you know get up walk it off kind of situation but i remember just feeling more than anything angry disappointed because you know like flashes are going into your head like i you know I've never been lucky to never been met a VAC prior or anything like that. And, you know, things start going through your head. In, in that split second, like, one, I am basically incapacitated right now. Like, I'm a liability. So there was some guilt to it that the last thing, you, you're you supposed to be the guy. On the I, I kind of looked at myself as the guy on the team that would, you know, if, if somebody got hurt, if I needed to pick up the slack for somebody, I – worked hard physically and fitness wise so that I could be the one to, you know, to help somebody out in that situation. So it was, it, there was definitely some guilt that I had. One, we had to kind of stop and take care of me, which is, you know, nobody wants to be that guy. You know, I, I was very fortunate and very to that time we were the first bird in and I think I was only on the ground for maybe 20 minutes or a half an hour because I think they threw me on the back of the third Chinook down. Definitely wasn't, you know, wasn't a got called in. It was, I think, the the bird circling ahead and
0: turning her above, and
1: luckily we got some, I mean, everybody did a great job. a combat controller started talking to the birds right away and let them know the situation, so they all, and I think we had, you know, our, our Chinooks had some escorts and maybe some Apaches at that time, and, everybody was you know kind of settled in a a kind of like a a rotation uh pattern you know figuring out like all right who's gonna who's gonna drop down and get this guy and you know i thought about and like again even more than anything i think back it was like i just felt guilty i felt bad that i was the one that birds were having to stick around it and the last thing i wanted to do is we came pretty quick you know you don't you don't want the, the loud noises of uh, the helicopters um, hanging around too long. Obviously, it kind of pinpoints your position, but then it puts the puts the aircraft in danger. From any, you many know, ground to air, you know, whether it be heavy machine gun or, or you know, we had reports of some some other anti aircraft uh, weapons in the area. So I, that was the thought too, is like these guys are all doing this for me. I mean, not just my guys. On the ground, but it, all the pilots and in their crews, and um, you know, I'm sure the the ops center back at Bodrum was all spun up, and the so honestly, it felt felt guilty that everything was stopped or changed at this point because because of me because I you know made the mistake of you know taking a misstep or not seeing not seeing the edge of this and. So that that was frustrating, and definitely, you know, definitely frustrating. And and not only that, when I got to, they like, "All right, well, the bird's going to come back down and and land over here." Um, they didn't want to land right on top of us, so it's kind of offset, and, and we had to move maybe maybe a hundred meters. It wasn't it wasn't that that far <laughs> at that point with the leg. It seemed very far because you know I had a. a a couple guys come and and I was able to put you know put my arms around each one of them and uh, they were you know able to uh, we started moving then I just felt like a real wimp because the the pain was excruciating that the, like, the leg just hanging there and then you know kind of being swung or moved as we just kind of like you know moved along or, or kind of so like you've got your forward. arm
0: your arm around. Two guys' shoulders, I guess. Is that how it went on each side? And you're, and so you're, yeah.
1: You're, just, just like you'd see, like um, a football player coming off the field. Uh, yeah. yeah, I had a couple. Of, I was a bigger guy, so they, they. Luckily, there was a couple other big guys there, and put my arms around them, and they, you know, they pretty much took all my weight. But it was the fact that the leg was kind of swing swinging there that I, I had to stop them, and I was like, I'm sorry, guys, like. It hurts regret. and I thought because you see, like college and professional football players, like hear their ACL and be able to walk off the field and under their own power. And I, I can't even, you know. Of course, the train wasn't the most hospitable, but it wasn't horrible. But even with all that support, it just became so painful that I had, you know, I had to stop them. I had to go down, and they had to take out one of their, uh, I think it's called a floss trot, but like a coat type litter. And then, you know, as I was sitting there and I was working my way onto a litter, of course, the guilt was just continuing. Like, oh, you know, these, these poor guys got to carry, you know, carry me. And um, the rest of the way, it was almost like, you know, reminding me of selection and team week and having to, um, you know, figure out a way to get from point A to point B with the not the easiest payload to to move around but they got me on the back of the bird and uh, took off and I had it was the loneliest helicopter ride I'd ever uh, I'd ever had sit there not knowing exactly what's what's going on with the leg and then start thinking about like oh they're gonna send me home and that's uh, just the questions and doubt and fear all started building um, up just in that there was no there to talk to you. I remember that, you know they had door gunners I saw you know their their helmets with the you know you know shield shield over top if I couldn't see their eyes I'd see them like kind of like glance over and, and look at me but there was definitely definitely nobody to talk to I just had my kind of leg I was on my back on the floor of a Chinook just uh I'd just print you know I gave, we was going back to, to all about it felt like the longest flight, but all I was wishing for was to be over and, and to be back there, and I guess start getting some answers more than
0: anything. And I'm guessing you hadn't had any pain medicine at this time. No, no, not
1: yet. <laughs> I was an 18 Fox at the time, but obviously, uh, which is uh, Intel Special Forces Intel. Uh, but I had previously been an 18 Delta, so every time you're once a Delta or once a medic, always a medic kind of thing. I had I had my aid bag and things like that, but I guess I could have had somebody administer it, but it really, honestly, it all happened so fast that it wasn't until, you know, I got back to J-Bad, where I think I first got my first uh, attempt at pain, pain relief with uh,
0: pain meds. Well, Brent, will you explain, uh, well, correct me anywhere I may be wrong here, it seems like... The doctors wanted to go ahead and amputate. You did not want that, and so you you tried every option, and then you finally did amputate above the knee. Will you maybe explain kind of what happened there and, and why you did not want to amputate? If I have the story correct.
1: Yeah. No. Do they? It uh, was kind of. I think once I got to, like right off the bat, once I got to, uh, J Bad and the the forward surgical team there you know, they had a portable x-ray machine and they took an x-ray, like an anterior, posterior, front to back x-ray of the, of the leg. And you could tell that there was a big chunk of my, like the tibial plateau or the the head of the tibia um, was chipped off or you know, there's a big chunk that just had definitely cracked and it was, it, it was broken. So I think throughout my whole process from going from there Bagram and uh, the facility there actually when I got there uh, when I was medevac from I think the next morning from J-bed to to Bagram by some awesome awesome PJs who uh, definitely you know took care of me and made sure that I was I was comfortable during um, during the trip there but I think an hour after being on the ground and in the hospital at, or the the roll three, uh, military hospital there in Bagram, I felt the worst pain, and to this day the worst pain I have ever felt. It felt literally like my my leg wanted to explode from the inside, and it was getting worse. And you know they always ask you, uh, okay, you know, so on a scale of one to ten, 10, 10 being your worst, you know, the worst pain you've ever felt. Where are you at? And I'm like. Literally, I'm at ten. I'm at ten, and this is no exaggeration. So the the pain part wasn't, uh, you know, they were like, okay, well, you know, once the doctor comes around, we'll we'll see if we can increase your pain med. But just within, you know, within a, a few seconds after that, the pain just got worse and worse and worse. And then, you know, the nurse nurse came in and and tried to take a a, a pedal pulse is basically a, a pulse on the top of your foot um, that they check to make sure you're getting circulation down there, and they couldn't find one. So basically, all the the damage they had done, all the blood and fluid was filling up in the compartment or the, the lower leg area, and uh, so that's called compartment syndrome, where You know, your skin will stretch and stretch and stretch, but underneath the skin, there's what's called fascia, and that'll stretch to a certain point, but then it'll stop stretching. So all that fluid, just, you know, blood and, and then whatever else just kept building up on the inside, and, you know, there's no place for it to go. So it starts, you know, pushing its force kind of inward, and it basically clamps off, you know, your major blood vessels so that's why when they realized I had had lost my pedal pulse and I was in so much so much pain that they're like all right well he's got compartment syndrome and um, so they did what's called a fasciotomy on both sides where they basically fillet the the interior the inside and outside of your your lower leg from basically the ankle all the way up to the to the knee they cut the fascia to Relieve that all that pressure in there. So they put me out to do that, and then I woke up with a metal rod, a couple metal rods, connected from my femur to my tibia. It was called an external fixator, really just to lock it, lock it in place. Because every time, every time I felt that pain, and the muscle started to like in my thigh and everything started to contract and almost like started to want to pull the lower leg, basically make the tibia go alongside the, the femur. So they wanted to, you know, lock that in place and they had done the fasciotomies and, 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 uh, and wound back. So that was kind of the emergency you know, going through, uh, eventually I got out of Bagram and they sent me to launch stool in Germany. There, you know, they, they weren't even concerned with taking another x-ray or bone, bone scan. They just, had what they had as far as they were considered, so they concentrated more on the fasciotomies and making sure they were doing. You know, I was getting them a wound washout pretty much daily until I got back, and then so they did a good job of that. But then I think because they thought it was to a not necessarily a lesser degree, but that it was just that that one chunk piece off, flew into Andrews Air Force Base, spent the night there, and instead of going to Walter Reed, they sent me home. To, you know, to, uh, to Fort Bragg and Womack, uh, the Army Hospital here. And uh, kind of right off right off the bat, they they did a wound washout. And, you know, so they put me under for that. I connected with my wife at that point, And so she was there. And uh, I think they did finally decided to do a bone scan. And as I was coming out of anesthesia from the wound washout, and it was one of the worst, worst almost like reactions to the anesthesia. Like I was shaking uncontrollably and, and I couldn't swallow, so I couldn't get words out, but my wife was bedside and I could tell that she was very upset and had been, was actively or had recently been crying instead of that chunk being off on the backside, basically to the, uh, to the interior of the tibial plateau, it looked like a vase had just shattered. Um, I think it was uh, the head of the tibia, the lower part of the joint was basically in about three, three dozen pieces, you know, I wasn't a big fan of his bedside manner at that point, um, because he had, you know, then told my wife what I'd never be able to do again. I'd never be able to do this. I'd never be able to do, uh, that again, that's how severe the injury is. And that he basically, he believed or, or felt that there were two options, either, Fuse, almost like fuse the, the knee joint. So almost like a live peg leg kind of thing. And then I think just for a period of time until I got a little bit older and they were able to do like a complete knee replacement. Or the other option was, you know, amputation. And I remember them talking about this and I was just like, are you kidding me? Come on, guys. It's it's just a broken leg. People break their legs all the time. Heel. Heel. And come back 100. percent So it was just uh, I couldn't fathom the fact that that they were sitting there telling me that they they couldn't fix it. You know, to me it was just all was shattered and all those things. I got like, you know, Ken's got to get things like this all the time, and it's a broken phone, and we can go in and put it back. You know, uh, just you know, put it back together and and that kind of thing. Um, you know, I, I definitely was at that point. I'm like, no, I'm not. I'm not doing either. I don't want to. I'm not going to fuse a leg and I'm not going to do an amputation. I want you to try to, I think somebody can try to put it back together before we take those drastic measures. And, you know, the army surgeon there, he's a good, good guy and just basically like, you know, I've never done a surgery like this where I've had to put bits and pieces together and I can't tell you what, you know, the prognosis or the results going to be. You know, my mindset was, the army gives you boots you wear the boots you know the army gives you a doctor you see that doctor or that kind of thing but you could tell he wasn't he wanted to do the surgery because he wanted to he definitely wanted to help but i don't think he had much confidence that he was going to be able to fix it so luckily my my advocates around me my wife and and some very close friends to the family were like you have choices you don't just you're not stuck right here let's talk to the surgeon if you're not comfortable and then, then we'll do that and i was like okay well that that makes sense and although the you know the doctor was was very professional you know surgeons have their their egos because they do you know they they can fix things do these amazing things and he wanted to uh, you know add or attempt he wanted to attempt to help but he also said it hey, if, if you have any doubt in me, if you're not 100% confident that you want me doing your surgery, then if something goes wrong, you're going to spend the rest of your life regretting and thinking about this, you know, thinking about, uh, well, what if I had had a different surgeon? What if I had done this? So he, more than anything, to his credit, he just wanted me to be confident and whatever, you know, was to be done was going to be done right. And, or at least every effort was going to be made. And if it didn't turn out, it didn't turn out, but there wasn't that, that what if, and there wasn't that thing, you know, that, that would really kind of mentally drive you crazy for, you know, years, years to come. But we, my wife started, and she's got a medical background too. She's a, she's a registered, registered nurse, actually worked at um, the big, big hospital in Raleigh, Wake Med, pediatrics emergency room department so you know incredible and very knowledgeable what she did you know she hopped on the internet and started looking at tibial tibial plateau specialists and the first guy that po- popped up was a Dr. Ostrom and he just happened to be right up at UNC Chapel Hill so you know, said so we decided hey this is, this is the guy we want to try to get hold of and it's 100% up to him if he wants to take on the, you know, take on the surgery. But, uh, you know, the, the Army, our, our Army surgeon called him, explained the situation, got, you know, TRICARE approval to be seen at a non-military, you know, a, basically a civilian hospital. And he did all this in a very short period of time. And, and the surgeon up at UNC said, absolutely, I'd, I'd be glad to do what I can. Um, so then we got transferred up to, to UNC. And then kind of the the roller coaster of the next two years started. They call uh, limb salvage, which is a miserable existence. Definitely the worst two years of my life and and my my family's life because you were just you know over a dozen surgeries in that period of time. With you'd have hope, and then that hope would come crashing down when you realized that the surgery didn't take, or you had no mobility, and you were always in intense pain. It was it was really no way to live. You were, you know, so focused on the pain that you were, you know, you were never yourself, or, you know, you drowned it out with pain meds, and then you were never yourself too. There wasn't a, as far as what I saw, there really wasn't a balance at that position, you know, at, at that time. But I wanted to, uh, I left my unit to come back to the states earlier. I was going through these surgeries, and you know, they're just six months home, and then back over there. My goal was to. At some point, get over there with them.
0: Is there anything maybe specific that you'd like to touch on to maybe that you think yeah, is no, most important?
1: I guess the big, the biggest thing was then and kind of what turned things around. It was the decision. I was able to make that de- deployment, but the, the leg continued to deteriorate, you know, and it became a no-brainer. I could, decided to the, the amputation was going to be you know, my best option. So I was going to be in a lot less pain, a lot more mobility, or if I just continued on, you know, I was going to be in a lot of pain with no mobility. So it became a no-brainer. You know, the realization that even though you've made this decision and you're completely 100% all right with it, your journey is kind of just beginning from there to learn how to live as an amputee. And you said, I guess the biggest thing is I was, it's hard to explain to people, but I was, I was lost. Like I felt like I was a shell of who I was. I felt like I was in there. I couldn't find me, you know? And I think, you know, my wife felt the same way. he was like, this is not, this is not my husband. I think he's, he's still in there, but how are we going to start pulling, you know, pulling him back out? How are we going to get like this, like the ESPN article said, like, you know, how Brant became Brand again, I guess what? really sparked it off for me of course i had tremendous support from my wife and my family and everything that was definitely the the rock and the in the base of all of it but it, it wasn't until honestly i got convinced to go out and try sled hockey which was down there in um, san antonio where i had the amputation and was rehabilitating and i the first time i got out there i had never you know i had my doubts about that was i always said I think everybody's kind of got this stigma of adaptive sports. I know I did. And I was like, I don't want to play adaptive sports. I want to play real sports. I want to play the sports that I know. Things aren't exactly the same. So eventually I'd say, well, I'm willing to, to try anything. And went out there. And I remember the very first time out there. Uh, I mean, I was awful. But uh, I was like, this is, this is kind of hard to do because there's a lot, of, a lot of moving pieces. But what it came down to was we scrimmage at the end. And I felt that, that, that spark, that fire of competition. And it was the first thing about me I recognized. I, was like, I remember that. I remember feeling, I remember being that guy that was, you know, the most competitive guy on the team or the most competitive. And all of a sudden I felt it again. And it was just like, it was the first time I, I was able to like kind of grab a piece of me again. And it wasn't overnight. But that was the start and that was that was the process and it started the process I guess and I, I was like well if the sled hockey can do it, you know, then I need to, to open my my world to some of these other so called adaptive sports and then kinda of found the warrior games, started training for all these different events and felt like an athlete again and you know when you are when you when you've worked so hard to earn that green beret and it's not just a job it's it's your lifestyle and so I felt that that was taken away too but with feeling like an athlete again I started feeling like a green beret again I started standing a little bit taller I started having a little bit more you know more confidence in myself and recognizing who I was and then really worked to to build from there as I kind of piece by piece I started putting myself you know putting the who I felt I really was you know, back together again. And, and, um, that spread to all aspects of my life, my family, my career, the rehabilitation. Um, and then like you said, piece by piece. So I owe a lot to sled hockey and adaptive sports because that's sports have always been a a huge part of my life. And I guess that was just the first, first step in really getting Brant to be brand again, that kind of thing.
0: Well, Brant, what role has or did Tanya play in your recovery? she was everything
1: you know she was my obviously my wife my best friend mother of my children but you know she also had to take on the she had to do all of that by herself not only couldn't I physically with a lot of the things it was I wasn't me so I I couldn't be the husband I wanted to be Mm -hmm. her and the father people
0: people forget about the caregiver or the spouse quite often don't they and what they have to go through. Absolutely, and I, one one day it hit me. I think
1: somebody was—I don't think it was an interview. I think it was just somebody, you know, somebody kind of just random, maybe a neighbor or something like that. Said, uh, "You are so inspirational, and you you're so talking talk to me, and you're so motivational." And I didn't see myself as that way, but. It was just like, you're just so strong. I don't know how you you stay always so strong. And I said, you know, I just thought to myself, wow, if you had only seen me through this process, I wasn't always the strong one. In fact, I was the majority of the time not the strong one. It was Tanya that was the strong one. She was my rock, and she's the one who stayed strong. And, you know, I just, she picked me up through the process. I, you know, and, um, so she, you know, I get like she was a strong one. She, she's the inspirational one. I, I don't think I could have done what she did through this entire process. And, um, in fact, I'm you know, almost sure I couldn't have done, you know, had to, what she had to take on. And then the fact that you send your, your husband off to war, not realize, you know, not, you know, with no guarantee that he's coming home, but, you know, you're willing to do that well, because you love him and you're a patriot as well. You're a warrior, you know, warrior family as well. And so that's, that's a sacrifice that they're, they're willing, willing to make for their country, which is it. like, I don't know if I could send her off to war not knowing if she was coming home. So, but then I do come home, but I come home as, not me, you know, completely lost at that point. The responsibility and the burden falls quadruples on her. And now, you know, now you got your, your, husband home, but he's not, he's not who you remember. And you could tell that he's just so lost and with, with no guarantee that he's going to come back. Is he lost for good? And there, I mean, it was a, like, it was a long process. So I am sure it, and she'll tell you at some point she wasn't sure if if I was going to come back and what did that mean for our family and and things like that. But I can't imagine. She has always been my strength. Even you know regular deployments to be able to go off to war and know that your your daughters are in such good hands and that you're you're going to come home to the loving home that you've, you know, you left. That's a huge responsibility and a huge uh, but you know I always knew that she was going to make that happen and so yeah she she was she she's been everything in this process even before the process even when we decided we were gonna do the military thing together she's always she's she's been the one who, who hasn't wavered and, and has always stood strong
0: and been strong and for
1: me and for our
0: family well Brent what would you like to say in closing apologize for going on and it's just obviously it's a I'm I'm
1: passionate about talking about it because in addition to my wife throughout the whole process there has been so many people who have played a part in bringing me back people that I will probably never see again never talk to because they it was just a you know maybe a a small couple weeks of treatment or something like that but it was there are so many great Americans that did so much that they probably probably don't even realize it, but did so much for me coming back and you know and, and finding myself and learning to 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 live life again. That so many people you can uh, never never repay or never even have the opportunity to. But it's such a it's such a team effort, and it just if you're ever. You know, if you, if you ever have any doubt about this country being the greatest country on earth or the greatest country that this this world has ever known, you just look at all the selfless people that we we take care of each other as as Americans. And and um, like I said, I'm just extremely blessed to be you know to be be an American, to be part of this country, and I'd be willing a thousand times over to to defend it. And keep it that way, but there's so many. Uh, besides what I what I do, which gets a lot of the recognition, there are so many people behind it that, that allow me to do what I do and what make this make makes this country just just incredible. And everybody who's who's, who's been blessed enough to to be part of you know to be to be here and be part of that. I, I hope they. I just hope everyone realizes how how lucky that we are, Americans.
0: Well, and you're one of those great Americans and great patriots. So appreciate you sacrificing time from your family and putting your body <laughs> through what you did and all the the emotional challenges that you've you've gone through. And I know we just barely touched the surface for, on your recovery, but thank you for serving our country, Brent, and for your and for continuing to help lead our freedom fighters.
1: It truly is an honor.